So let's pray. <laughs> All right. You guys have your Genesis journals. Open up to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. Renee's just going to read the first eight verses to us this morning. So Genesis 21, 1 through 8. All right. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there is no other way to begin this sermon except to say, it's a boy! (laughs) If you've been with us on this journey through Genesis, you should be going, holy smokes, it finally happened. It's almost like it took us so long to get to this point that as we realize they're celebrating, we should be stopping to celebrate with them. So much is recorded about Abraham and Sarah's life from chapter 12 until this moment where there's a promise that there's going to be an offspring. And so finally, Isaac is here. And so in a very insufficient way, we need to celebrate that Isaac is here. So we got balloons. It's a boy. We've got it's a boy mints. We're going to pass them around. <laughs> if you guys could just distribute them in your sections. There's, they're butter mints, so I need to put, project the ingredients in case anybody's allergic. I think there's actually butter in them, right, or something. So we've got balloons. We need to, like, I read that this week, and I'm like, I'm reading going, there's only seven, eight verses here really dedicated to the birth. I think I'm going to give one to Jess, prophesying. No. <laughs> there you go. Here, Eden. There you go. It's a boy. When I read this chapter, when I read this section, I thought, this is insufficient. Eight verses after all this waiting, and all we get are eight verses about the birth of Isaac. I want deets. Like, I want to know what's going on here. You can't just, like, in seven verses just blurt out, and and Isaac's here, and then move on. So in my mind, this is insufficient. But what we need to realize is, that in God's mind, this is not insufficient. In these seven verses, in these eight verses, God is going to communicate to us exactly what God wants to communicate us to us about the birth of Isaac. And there's certain details he leaves out because he doesn't want us to get distracted. And there's other facts that he includes because he wants to make sure that we don't miss them. And so here's what he really, really wants us to see this morning. I think he wants us to see that nothing is too hard for God. 
Nothing is too wonderful for God. Nothing is too marvelous for God. You guys remember back in chapter, is it 17? 18. Go back to chapter 18 for a second. I need to read this because this sets the stage for what we're going to talk about this morning. In chapter 18, the Lord and two angels show up. Abraham greets them. And then in verse 9, we have this dialogue. I'm going to read it to you as a way of refresher. So I'm Genesis 18, verse 9. They, the two angels and the Lord, said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent behind the door, behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with her. She was postmenopausal. Verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The word hard there is also the word for marvelous or wonderful. Is anything too hard or too wonderful for the Lord? So I think we have to carry that phrase into, It's not too hard because here's Abraham and Sarah having Isaac. Even when Abraham's a hundred and Sarah is 90. So what I want to do is I wanted to show us six things that are marvelous about God. So this is what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to see, we're going to start each one. It's going to kind of start the same. It is not too hard for God, or it is not too marvelous for God, or it's not too wonderful for God, and then we're going to fill in the blank looking at just these eight verses. So point number one is this. It is not too hard for God, or not too marvelous for God. It's not too wonderful for God to keep all of his promises. So go back to chapter 21. Look at verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. As he had said and as he had promised. God does not consider this promise too hard for him to keep. So he does exactly what he has said, and he does exactly what he has promised. And what did he promise Sarah? Well, he promised her that she would conceive. And so verse 2 says, Sarah conceived. He also promised Sarah that she would bear a son. In verse 2 it says, And she bore Abraham a son. Not a daughter, but a son. No ultrasounds. When the baby was born, you had to wonder if Abraham and Sarah were going, what if it's a girl? (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) But no, God, as he had promised, gave them a son. God, as he had promised, she conceived. And very clearly, God wants to make sure we don't miss that the baby is Abraham and Sarah's. It's not Abraham and Hagar's. It's not Sarah's and Abimelech's. Remember last week? No, he works hard, the author Moses does, through the power of the Spirit to make sure we know this is Sarah and Abraham's child. And he does that by making sure that he repeats the word Sarah and Abraham 11 times in seven verses. Did you catch that? I mean, it's kind of silly almost when you read it. 11 times to read Sarah and Abraham in seven or eight verses is crazy. But God wants to make sure we know, the reader knows, that God fulfilled his promise. It wasn't too hard for him to do that. So we read in verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. And I love this next sentence. 
Abraham called the, son, the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah born to him, Isaac. Like, just to make sure that everyone is clear, Hagar is not involved in this, Abimelech is not involved in this. Abraham and Sarah, 100 years old, 90 years old, God did it, he kept his promise. So the author wants to make sure we don't, we don't miss that at all. It is not too hard for God to keep his promises. So we have a Bible reading plan as a church, and I don't know if you guys are trying to keep up with the Bible reading plan, but I want to keep encouraging you as you do to look for the promises of God. Look for the I wills that are in God's word. Those are all promises that God makes. And then to see whether God fulfilled them in the story that you're reading or whether he's going to fulfill them one day in our lives. But we need to look back on all those, one, all those I wills. We need to embrace all those promises and realize that none of them are too hard for God. None of them are too marvelous for God. There are promises I read in the Bible, God, that's too good to be true. It's still true. All of my sins are forgiven, cast into the depths of the sea. Too good to be true. True. All the promises of God are true. This past week, we read from Psalm 77. And here's what it says. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. No. His promises will never come to an end. God always makes promises and always keeps his promises. So for God, it's not too marvelous. For him to keep his promises. Number two, second thing I see here. It is not too hard for God to keep all of his promises, and here's one we don't like, in his timing. I wish that wasn't there. I wish that didn't have to be there. But I think I'm going to try to persuade you why I think it's good that it's there. In his timing. Notice again verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and he did, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised and what did he promise back in chapter 18? We read it. Yep, that in a year, she would conceive and she'd have a baby and God would come back and visit her. So when God's timing, God says when it's going to happen, God's timing happens. He promised she'd return. He promised he did she'd have a baby and it came true. And this was a long wait. 25 years. That is a long time. Yesterday, I waited 25 minutes in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru <laughs> to get my four free mini chicken biscuit sandwiches. And I thought it was the end of the world! <laughs> Sarah probably was waiting 70 years if she wanted to have a baby when she was in her late teens. 70-some years of waiting for a child. That is insane for us to even think. We want things done now and immediately and quickly. And yet here she is waiting and waiting and waiting. And I have to think that her waiting had to be longer than his. I mean, he at least had Ishmael, right? At least it was shown through Ishmael that he could have kids. It was Sarah's kind of the problem. And that had to sting her. She had to feel that, I'm sure. She was also an outcast to be a woman in that culture and not have children. So I, I can't imagine the emotional, relational, mental, spiritual trauma that she experienced all those days while she was waiting and waiting and waiting. Yet Hebrews 11 tells us that by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So she's waiting, and I'm sure her journey was up and down like ours. God's faithful to his promise. Oh, 
I hope God's faithful to his promise. I think God's faithful to his promise. God's faithful to his promise. And I'm sure she had to have others remind her of the same thing. But she conceived with faith, believing God could do it. In case you haven't noticed, if you've been around God or his word for a while, he never seems to be in a hurry, does he? He's never in a hurry. We tend to be in a hurry. Rush to the next thing. Do two things at once. Multitask. Overcommitting. Not God. He is never in a rush. And I think, I think we're supposed to consider Abraham and Sarah waiting these 25 years. And I think we're supposed to take a deep breath and maybe declare out loud, God is going to do everything in your life that he wants to do in his timing. God is going to do everything for you and in you in his timing so that you're going to know him the way that he wants you to know him. And that's exactly what he's doing for Sarah and Abraham. And he's doing it in our lives, and I I know it looks different in all of our lives, right? He's doing different stuff in our lives, and your story is different than his story, and his story is different than your story. And it doesn't always make sense as to why, but we have to trust that God is accomplishing everything he wants to accomplish in his timing. I know when it comes to just having children, we've experienced that as a church family over and over again. I don't know if you guys are aware, I asked Jordan and Justy if I could share this, but Andrew is a gift from God after two years of praying when they thought they might not, be, might not be able to have any children. Listen, two years is a long time to wait when you want to have kids, especially when all your friends are having children. I, got, I know you guys know the Bowsers. Chris and Danielle waited seven years for Jane, Jade. Seven years. Jane. Sorry. Jane. Seven years they waited. That's a long, long time to wait. Jordan and Jess are here, waiting and waiting. And here we go with number two. But you waited how many years? Five? Five with lots of ups and downs and lots of trials along the way and lots of tears shed and lots of people praying for you and you praying lots of prayers. I wish I could understand what God does and why he does it. I have good friends that have been praying forever for kids and still don't have kids. I know many of you have been praying for lots of different things not just related to children. And it's hard to wait. And there's no promises, maybe, for what you're praying for that it's actually going to ever come true. And I can't tell you why all this happens, but I think it needs to shape our worldview. It needs to shape how we live our lives every day to really believe that God is doing everything God needs to do in your life so that you'll know him the way he wants you to know him. So that when we're together, we all fill out the picture of what God is like as we all experience him in different ways, with different nuances, on different journeys. And I know that is not easy. In fact, I know at times it really sucks. But we need to learn to trust God through that and to do it together, and to cry together and weep together and struggle together and suffer together as we wait to see what God has to do. Because he is good, and he is in control, and he loves his children, And he's doing whatever he needs to do so that you will embrace him and know him. And he does it personally. There's a third thing I see in this story. And it's not too hard for God to keep his promises personally. I love how it says in verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah. The Lord visited Sarah. First notice the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, God himself, Almighty, Jehovah, 
came down and took note. The word visited. He, he took note of her. He noticed her. He came close to her. He personally came down to visit Sarah. Now, in other places in Scripture, God will send a prophet. Or he'll send angels. You need to notice here, God just comes down all by himself. He's the messenger. He's the one that comes down and descends to spend time with Sarah. He comes personally to her. And this must have been wonderfully marvelous for Sarah. After all of that waiting, that God sees her. God visits her. God takes special notice of her. And because God visited Sarah, she had Isaac. And because she had Isaac, 2,000 years later, God visited us. Right? Familiar terms. Christmas story. Jesus comes, and what, is it, what do we sing and say? Emmanuel, God with us. And he comes and down, and he visits us again through the family line of Sarah. So God is a visiting God. He takes notice of her. And know this, as a child of God, God notices you. I love we're going to talk next week about Ishmael and how God notices him. God sees him. Listen, God is a seeing God. You go about your day. He's not distracted by other things. He's able to somehow keep an eye on me and you at the same time and a couple million other people. He's able to do it because he's God. And so in this case, he is juggling the rest of the universe without any problem, and yet he still comes down to bless Sarah, to come down and bless her so that we could be blessed, not just with his presence when he was with Sarah, but with his presence with us as God with us personally and close. This goes beyond God just being omnipresent, right? God is everywhere equally all the time, but God is also near, and he draws near to us. And I don't know about you, but I want his nearness. I want him to come close, and he offers that to us through the power of his spirit. And so we should anticipate, we should want and expect to feel and experience God's active presence, his nearness to us. I pray you want that. I pray you want to say to yourself, I want to experience God like Sarah. I want to know his nearness. He's here. I want to know he's here. Uh, He's here, and I want to feel his presence. I want to know his nearness. I want to know his closest, and that we wouldn't be so busy that we wouldn't have a chance to pursue him and to spend time enjoying his very presence. So we have his presence because, right now, through the Spirit, only because God first visited Sarah. He visited Sarah, and so now we can say God is also with us. And... Number four, he did it supernaturally. He kept his promise supernaturally. I know it's kind of silly to say that. Can God do something that's not supernatural? I guess when God does it, it automatically fit into that category. I don't know. I was thinking about it this morning. Going, Is that an accurate statement? Like, can God do something not supernatural? If he has hands in it, it must be out of this world. So maybe this is a redundant statement, but it is not too hard or too marvelous, or too wonderful for God to keep all of his promises supernaturally. So verse 5 tells us that Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. A hundred. Sarah is 90. I can't help but think that God just loves to show off. Let's try to create a situation that seems too hard. Let's put all of my people up against a, a, a sea and surround them by Egyptian sh- soldiers when they're about to die. Let's make it as hard as we can so that I can then come down and do my thing. He loves to do that. I think he loves to do that in our lives too. I just wonder how often I miss it. That he loves to come down and just do crazy stuff just to surprise us, just to delight us, just to show us I'm still in charge. I'm still running the show. Because he is. Because he loves to do things 
supernatural. He loves to do the impossible. So no doubt, I think that's a big part of making Isaac, making Abraham and Sarah wait for Isaac. Because if they didn't wait, I think they probably would have just concluded, of course we had a baby. That's what happens. You get married, you have kids. They would not have seen it as supernatural. Do you realize that every child, every one of us, that's supernatural. Babies don't happen outside of supernaturalness. God has to do something to make that happen. He's involved. And so I think they might have just concluded, well, we had a baby and that's what happens. But I can't help but think that part of the waiting is so that Sarah and Abraham would realize God does the supernatural. God can take something that seems impossible and he does it. Too hard, he does it. Too marvelous, he does it. Too impossible, and he still does it. And so he makes them wait for the purpose of them experiencing him as their supernatural God, rather than thinking that they have a baby because of their own skill or plans or timing or fate. And so God is involved in the whole process. And then number five, fifth thing about our God, I think God wants them and us to see that it's not too hard for God to keep all of his promises based in grace. It's not too hard. It's not too wonderful. It's not too marvelous for God to keep and fulfill all of his promises, not based on how good you are, but based on grace. I think we could easily miss this point, to be honest. I know I could have easily missed this point. When God first appeared to Abraham and Sarah back in chapter 12, it was not because Abraham was really good looking. It wasn't because he had it all together. Abraham, you're so successful, I can't resist but to make a covenant with you. You're such a well-behaved young man. I need to reveal myself to you and make a promise. We need to realize it had nothing to do with Abraham. When God cut the covenant, remember the animals got cut in half and God walked through them, what did Abraham do? Nothing. He slept. Do you see the point God is trying to make? The covenant and the promise has nothing to do with Abraham. And, and since God spoke the promise back in chapter 12, 25 years have passed, which have given God ample time to change his mind about the promise based on Abraham and Sarah's behavior. I mean, how much do I sin in 25 years? Knowingly and unknowingly. Plenty. How much did Sarah and Abraham sin that God couldn't have said, all right, you crossed the line, promise reversed. Covenant retracted. He had plenty of opportunities to do that along the way, but he didn't. Because God's promises, they're based in grace. All based in grace. Not in works. Abraham and Sarah didn't earn Isaac or deserve Isaac. Yes, they had faith that God would give them Isaac, but that faith came after God had already made the promise. So the promise began based in grace, and God kept the promise based in grace. I know that we all have different personalities and different experiences, but I think all of us at some point struggle with wondering whether God is really for us when we consider how we behave. I do. Is God really for me? My half-hearted commitment to him? 
I want to love him with all my heart and soul and mind and strength, and I don't. I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, and I'm selfish instead. And you start to pile up how we really are, and I wonder, does God really, is he, is he really for me? Or do his promises really hold water when I'm really low, when I'm doing really poorly? My walk with him is eh, more like a crawl, or maybe going backwards. And we've got to fight that. Because all we're doing when we believe those lies is we're insulting the character of God. God's grace is bigger. And God knew when he got into covenant with you that you were a sinner. And he knows right now while he's continuing his covenant promises with you, he knows you're still a sinner. And that's what grace is all about. It's about God blessing those who deserve punishment. And so that's what he's doing here with Sarah and Abraham. And we're supposed to take note of that. Because if God's blessings were based on our obedience, there'd be no blessings. There'd be none. There would be no blessing if it was based on how well we behave. So God's promises, they're based in grace. And I love it that in the New Testament, God whispers these words to Paul so that we can have some more meat to put on why this is true. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all The promises of God find their yes in him. The him, in context, is Jesus. So, for all the promises of God, notice the word all, it's not for some of the promises, most of the promises. It's not for 99.9% of the promises. It says all the promises of God find their yes in him, not in you, in him. And it's a yes. It's not a maybe or could be. It is a yes. So I think we can live in a world that says, reads this verse this way. For some of the promises find their maybe in me. That's how I live sometimes. I, I, I do. I function that way where I can feel discouraged, depressed, doubt God's promises are good for me. And I can think, for some of God's promises, find there may be in me. Instead of realizing, no, the verse says very clearly, for all, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. He bought the promises. He sealed the promises. And then our response, that is why it is through him, through the, the power of God, through the power of Christ, that we utter our amen to the glory of God. This is a great verse. Not that there's bad ones, but this is a good one. Every promise made to us, every I will God utters in his word happens because of Christ. God looks at Jesus's perfection, Jesus's righteousness, and how you are clothed in Christ. And when he sees Christ, he sees you and you clothed in Christ. And he keeps his promises based on that, based on Christ's righteousness, based on your being covered in his blood. That is why God says yes to every promise. So you're reading God's word, you come to a promise, and you go, eh. He goes, yes, in Christ, every time, no matter what the promise is. I will cast your sins into the bottom of the sea. Is that true? God says, yes, in Christ, that promise is true. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Is that true? Jesus says, yes, it's true, because it's in me. So there's a yes to that. 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yes, that's true because of Christ. I will work all things out to good for good for those who love God. Is that true? Yes, because of Christ. I will give you an eternal life with him with no hell, no sickness, no crying, no mourning, no sorrow anymore. Is that going to be true? Yes, because of Christ. Read the promises and then finish them with yes, because of Christ. Yes, because of him. And then utter your amen when it's done. Right? That's how that verse ends. We utter our amen for the glory of God. And that's how we're supposed to respond to the promises. So amen to God for the glory of him keeping all of his promises, no matter how hard, how marvelous, or how wonderful they are. Amen to God for the glory of his supreme uniqueness. How unique is this? That he keeps his promises to us based on the perfection of someone else. That's crazy. That doesn't happen in our world. Amen to God for the glory of Jesus. Amen to God for the glory of his grace. Amen to God for the glory of all of his ways and for how he keeps all of his promises. Oh, we need to utter our amen out loud. Utter your amen to God for the promises that he's kept for you and the ones that are sealed for you for an eternity to come. It is good and right for us to utter an amen to God for his glory. It's good. It is good, and we need to do it and recognize the things that God does in our lives so that we utter our amens at the right time for his praise and for his glory. And that's exactly what Sarah does. It comes in the form of laughter, which can sound confusing, but her amen is uttered in the form of a joyful laugh. This is number six. It is not too marvelous for God to keep all of his promises for our joy or for our laughter. So verse six tells us, Sarah says this, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Now, don't think of that as like a ha-ha-ha or a mocking laugh. This is a joyful word. This is a joyful laughter. And I can't help but think that this is God redeeming Sarah's laughter in verse 18, right? That was not a good laughter. That was her doubting and, and, and almost like not mocking God, but kind of like, eh, come on, God, that ain't going to happen. And she laughs, right? Here's a whole different kind of laughter. God redeems it. She gets what she wants, and she's giddy inside. She's laughing with joy. She's filled with so much overwhelmed joy. She doesn't know how to, how to deal with it. And I, in chapter 18, her laughter was inward and quiet. Remember? Here, I bet it's outward and vocal. I think she is filled with joy. Her laughter is an outward one. Her son's name, Isaac, means laughter. I'm always hesitant to try to figure out if they really knew what their names meant then and not now, but evidently this is really accurate. Isaac meant then one who rejoices or one who laughs. So it seems that the way God orchestrated this whole event, 25 years of waiting and all these other details, is to increase Sarah's joy. That was his aim through the whole thing. Why wait to have her nurse which is what she says here, at the age of 90. Why? I think it's to increase her joy. Why have her birth of Isaac based in a promise? To increase her joy. Why God's timing? To increase her joy. Why does God do it personally? To increase her joy. Why do it supernaturally? To increase her joy. Why do it based in grace? To increase her joy. God is after increasing her joy, to give her laughter, to give her true heartfelt joy through her circumstances by putting her through some things that weren't real pleasant. But she comes out of the other side, a woman 90 years old, rejoicing and laughing and realizing that others are going to join me in the joy. 
Others are going to hear my story. I'm going to tell other people my story. And they're going to rejoice with me when they hear what my God did for me in personally coming down and supernaturally giving me a baby. And so it's contagious. It turns into community laughter. Community joy. It's spread as everyone enjoys what God has done for her. So I think believing and experiencing the promises of God are meant to produce joy. I don't know if you spend time thinking about the promises of God. If you do, the end result, joy. You want to be happier? Think about the promises of God. You want to even find some laughter, some joyful laughter in your soul? Think about the promises of God because some of them are absolutely ridiculous. The things he promises us is mind-blowing, and they should cause us to laugh with joy. So here we go. Six things we see about this promise-keeping God. He keeps all of his promises He keeps them in his timing. He keeps them personally. He keeps them supernaturally. He keeps them based in grace. And he keeps them for our joy. It's kind of a summary, I think, of what God wants us to see about himself in this passage. And I think there's another connection. And I think you probably have already seen it. And if you had a little more time, I know you would see it. It is amazing how parallel Sarah's experience is to Mary. It's insane how parallel their experiences are. Let me make the connections with you here briefly because I can't resist not to do it. God came to Mary to fulfill a promise, just like God came to Sarah to fulfill a promise. God did it for Sarah in his timing. What do we read in the New Testament? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. God gave Sarah a baby supernaturally. Last I heard, Mary was a virgin. That's pretty supernatural. No explanation for that one. God met Sarah personally, and think about Mary. We read in Luke that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. God comes and personally ministers to Mary like he did Sarah. And both of their experiences are based in grace. Sarah's was based in grace. And even Mary's, we read, this might be Matthew Matthew or Luke, I can't remember now. Uh, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. The word favor is the word grace. You have found grace with God. God has extended grace to you. Mary wasn't perfect. Mary was a sinner. But she found grace as God met her with grace. So the parallels are amazing between the two stories. And look at their responses. I mean, Sarah is laughing with joy. And we read in Luke, Mary saying these words, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So her response to God keeping his promise is the same as Sarah's response. It's joy. They're rejoicing. Look what God has done in keeping his promises. Look what God has done in advancing his covenant promises to his people. I can't help but wonder if this is just Genesis 21, just a little foreshadowing for us to get a little picture of what's going to happen to Mary 2,000 years later. It's just a little foreshadow because the similarities are remarkable. And Mary's experience, grateful for us, good for us, brought about the fulfillment of of his promise that he made to Abraham and Sarah, right? God's promise to Abraham and Sarah was, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Isaac is born, and then baby, 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 to Jesus. And now we're blessed. As part of all the families of the earth, we are blessed. So I love 
Sarah's response and Mary's response is filled with joy. And we've got to check out Abraham's response as we close here. Just wrap it up. Look at his response. Verse 3. He names the boy Isaac. Who told him to name the boy Isaac? God. So he obeys God. Doesn't give him another name. Abraham II. He sticks with Isaac. Verse 4. He circumcises Isaac. I think it even says there in verse 4, as the Lord told him to do. So he obeys God. So he's obeying God, doing what God has said. And then in verse 8, what does he do? Party time. It's party time. I can't imagine. I mean, we don't, we don't, I wish we could just, little details here would be so much fun. I want to hear about the singing. I want to hear about the dancing. I want to hear about the musicians. I want to hear about the, the jokes, the, the food, the drink. I want to hear about it. It's not there. They feasted. But based on what we heard Abraham did when just three guys show up to his house, this was a party. I mean, there were hot pretzels everywhere. It was crazy. 25 years of waiting, you know, you pull out the best champagne, right? I mean, 25 years of waiting, God fills his promise. So they had a joyful, crazy feast celebration that was out of control as they celebrated that nothing is too hard for God, nothing is too wonderful for God, nothing's too marvelous for God, and we're going to celebrate. And I'm sure Sarah's right there with him, joyfully laughing the whole way as they partied, I'm sure, for days and days and days. A party all built around, a meal all built around the giving of a promised son. God has a habit of doing that, doesn't he? So this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which isn't that the same thing. It's a feast for God, a meal for us to celebrate that God sent his son in a supernatural, personal, amazing, remarkable, grace-based way so that our sins could be forgiven. You know I have a pet peeve, and I hope I don't say this ever in the wrong way, but I really believe the Lord's Supper should be more of a party than a funeral because he's alive. And I think we need to celebrate that he's alive. I've said before, I wish I could hand everybody a bottle of juice or wine and a whole loaf of bread so we could celebrate in a more appropriate way because this is worth celebrating. The covenant that God made with Abraham and Sarah, the promise he made to Abraham and Sarah, he kept. And he kept it so that you and I would be here today celebrating that Jesus came through the line of Abraham so that you and I no longer have to suffer the curse of the law. Jesus redeemed you from the curse of the law. He became a curse for us, so that in Christ we could be redeemed and have the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is really good news. And that's worth laughing joyfully about. That is the gift of God to us. So we're going we're to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I want to make sure we do it with joy this morning, with excitement in your soul, to, to pray, God, increase my joy as I consider what you have done for us, that you've kept your promises, not based on what we do, but on what you've done. And we're going to enjoy that together this morning. So what we're going to do. We're going to stand, and I'm going to ask you guys to go. Um, you take your bread, you can dip it in the wine or the juice, and bring it back to your seat. There's gluten-free in the back. For If you don't feel comfortable dipping and you want to take a little cup, there's little cups, individual cups of wine or juice. You can take that back to your seat. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to do that now while the band just plays for a second. And then uh, we're going to sing one song, and then after the song, we'll all eat together. Okay? So we'll eat together. So you can wait. I don't want anybody to feel awkward like I mowed my bread down and everyone's looking at me. So we'll take together after the first song. So let's... Christ redeemed us 
from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to us in this room today and so that we might have received the promised Holy Spirit. What good news. What good news. So let's rejoice. Let's eat our bread together, thanking God for what he's done for us, thanking Jesus for redeeming us so that you and I can have confidence today that all of God's promises are yes in Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's eat together and then continue to sing.